You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And thank you for joining us for a special Writers Live tonight. We also have exciting and thoughtful programming all year to kick off the grand reopening of Central Library. Tomorrow, we're welcoming the Stoop Storyteller bless you, to Central Hall. The event is in partnership with, also in partnership with the Johns Hopkins Center for Humanitarian Health in the Bloomberg School of Public Health. It'll be a powerful evening hearing the stories of refugees and their advocates. We're also hosting Undesigned the Red Line in Central Hall. It's on the first floor and it explores the history of structural racism and classism and how these designs compounded each other from the 1938 redlining maps until today. Tonight, we're having a critical conversation about structural inequalities in Baltimore. Through economic development, race, and class, and how deep-seated white supremacy creates this power dynamic. Lawrence Lanahan is moderating the conversation with local leaders, Antoine Bennett, the founder of Men of Valuable Action, Davon Love, the director of public policy for Leaders of the Beautiful Struggle, and Audrey McFarlane, the Dean Julius Isaacson Professor of Law and Associate Dean of Faculty Research and Development at the University of Baltimore School of Law. And this panel is inspired by Lawrence Lanahan's book, The Lines Between Us. So after the conversation, we'll also have a Q&A where we'll pass the microphone around, and then we'll have a book signing with our friends at the Ivy Bookshop. So please give a warm welcome to Lawrence Lanahan, Antoine Bennett, Davon Love, and Audrey McFarlane. set this up. Um, thank you for coming tonight. I've been looking forward to this event for a long time, speaking with these guests. And I just wanted to say something briefly about these lines, um, so that we're all on the same page when we talk about crossing them, our theme tonight. Um, these lines are best understood as lines of residential segregation and the inequality that segregation intensifies. Or just about any social variable you care to measure, break down a life expectancy. You may have heard Morgan State Professor Lawrence Brown described this pattern here is the white on the black butterfly. Uh, probably seen data maps that depict these lines, our visible landscape of segregation and inequality. But there's more to the lines, which I think we'll get into tonight. They're not as clinical as those maps would have you believe. Um, I feel like a deeper way of understanding them is through uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's metaphor of the veil. Um, he spoke of black communities living behind the veil. He called it quote, the veil that hung between us and opportunity. And the way I think about it is a veil is something that separates someone that they can see right through. Um, the book, uh, The Lines Between Us, um, this is something I did. I, I did a radio series called The Lines Between Us about seven years ago at WYPR. Um, just did a lot of episodes about why this place remains so segregated and, and has so much inequality. You know, 50 years after the Fair Housing Act, the current commission of the Civil Rights Movement. 
And uh, we looked at how housing and economic development and the criminal justice system and education all, all kind of reinforce that segregation and inequality. And for the last episode, we take the public event with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and some other people that asked the question, this is a real great radio headline, what tools do local, state, and federal government have to dismantle the drivers of structural inequality? Um, and I left YPR freelance and just kept asking those, that question um, and came across a, uh, two different families, each of which had crossed the lines between us. One was a white couple who had left Bel Air, prosperous white suburb in uh, Harper County, uh, to live in solidarity with the black poor in Sandtown and a black woman who moved her son from Penn North out to Columbia, pretty much for the schools. And by watching them cross the lines between us, those lines stand out in sharp relief. And you see the forces that push people to either side of the lines. And uh, so when the story is on the black side of those lines around here, what we often see, I feel like, are black communities fighting for self-determination. Um, we see the dynamics that are set in motion when white people and the white power structure cross those lines whether they're just looking to do business or help, we're trying to do both. Um, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. So Audrey, um, she's been introduced, but the way I came across Audrey was uh, Marketplace asked me to put a microphone in her face and take her end of a conversation she had on the phone with somebody from the Marketplace show. And I got interested in her work. Um, Antoine, uh, I did some reporting at Sandtown in 2014, um, and we've just kind of stayed in touch ever since, and he started Gary's Goods, uh, which we'll talk about, uh, a business that was launched in Sandtown and run for four years through New Song Urban Ministries, which was then a part of New Song Community Church. Um, and uh, Davon wrote an essay for that series, uh, The Lines Between Us in 2013, and uh, most stories I do, I call Davon, you know, I think his perspective is a uh, I think he's got a, a, a morally urgent, deeply researched, and acutely analytical way of explaining the white supremacist system that we all live in. Uh, in fact, in my book, After Freddie Gray Dies, in the book, the first voices you hear are uh, Reverend Dr. Heber Brown and Dave um, And so I'm not blind to the fact that I'm inserting myself in a conversation about black uh, self-determination. Um, what tonight was about for me was um, just taking this opportunity from the Pratt Free Library to talk about my book and hoping to kind of bring Baltimoreans together to confront the, contor the contortions that we go through daily to convince ourselves that we can wring real justice and equity out of the white supremacist system. Um, if that's a word, the term that gets the hackles up on the back of your neck, the way I think about it is in Latin, supra means on top, above. And, and the way white supremacy is more commonly being understood is just a system, and has been, it's been described this way for decades by scholars in the black community, but a system that keeps white people on top, economically, socially, politically. It was programmed into this country a long time ago, and I will entertain anyone's suggestion in the month, day, and year that we deprogrammed it. I wrote the book from the Fair Housing Act of Freddie Gray. I, I didn't find that day. And when things run on autopilot in this region and in this country, white supremacy will distort anything well-meaning uh, that we try to do. So let's talk about uh, crossing the lines. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, we'll hit three themes tonight, probably. Uh, how development happens in Baltimore, uh, how black communities attempt to maintain self-determination in, uh, put it mildly, a disadvantageous power dynamic, and uh, the dynamics that are set in motion when people from white communities cross the lines to try to help black communities. Um, can I kick us off with like a few paragraphs from the book? 
Alright, this is uh, April 27th, 2015, the day of destruction that no Baltimorean will probably ever forget. And this section focuses on William Scipio, uh, a young man who'd been raised in, in Sandtown and uh, kind of groomed as a leader in the community. Alright, so uh, before sunup, someone had created a Facebook event called Baltimore Cleanup. The event page suggested that people take cleaning supplies to North and Pennsylvania Avenues, the heart of the chaos where a CVS pharmacy was looted and burned. More than 2,000 people, many of them white, some from outside the city, responded that they would attend. Contentiousness arose in the comment section of the online event page. It seems like the majority of these people are from outside the community, i.e. white students or people who have never seen this community wrote one commenter, a young black college student from West Baltimore. This event should be spearheaded by black people of the West Baltimore community and no one else. Know your place, white participants. This is not a trip to the museum. Some white commenters reacted angrily. Why, they wondered, had she needed to make it about race? Some misinterpreted the comment as dissuading white volunteers from coming at all, and they said they would take their help elsewhere. One quoted Rodney King nearly verbatim. Can't we all just get along? If the lines between Baltimoreans have broken down the night before, indeed, even people in safe neighborhoods have felt anything but, the lines were already reasserting themselves, as some white commenters painted all black Baltimoreans with a broad brush. Let them clean their own mess up, one woman wrote. You're literally the epitome of a racist, wrote another. It was an old Baltimore story in a new guise, poor and rich, white and black, indicating good intentions to talk past each other. This time it transpired in crucible like the region hadn't seen since the 1968 assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The Facebook event pages organizers eventually got in contact with the No Boundaries Coalition and changed the listed meeting place to the same location that organization had settled on, Pennsylvania Triangle Park. William Scipio was happy to have outside help. The volunteers could have just stayed home. But as dozens of people flooded into the park around 10 a.m., Scipio and other Sandtown leaders were greeting volunteers and directing them to areas that needed cleaning. Their response reflected an attitude of self-determination and resilience. We're very grateful for the help, and we're going to remain in control of our own community. So I'm going to start with you, David. Does that passage seem indicative to you of a larger dynamic at work in this region? Um, so I would say yes, and to expand um, on that, because I think a, a, a part of... Um, so I think it's important to think about this in two major ways. One way is to think about this in terms of how is it that people are generally socialized to confront issues of power and privilege and race, right? And unfortunately, many people are socialized to think about um, notions of white supremacy, notions of oppression, um, primarily from the perspective of folks who are helpless and don't have the ability to help themselves, right? Um, and particularly in a society, given the ubiquitous nature of white supremacy, um, what comes along with it are the ways in which notions of black inferiority are seared into the collective American consciousness. The impact that that has is that, and one of the ways, there's a, there's a book by um, a woman named Sadia Hartman um, called Seeds of Subjection, where she talks, of, she critiques the way in which Hollywood has rendered movies about enslavement and have kind of um, emphasized the spectacle of the visions of violence and brutality and she argues that it obscures the actual structure of enslavement itself, which is violent and dehumanizing. And she argues 
that many um, American audiences consume <laughs> narratives about um, black suffering and enslavement the way that people consume horror movies. And so as a result, if that's one's relationship to suffering in relationship to black people, um, it results in a kind of infantilization that I think is characteristic, is characterized in the passage you just read, um, and, and black folks pushing. And so the second piece is black people pushing back against that. Um, it's important that we're resisting the infantilization and paternalism that really are the lubricants for the machinery of white supremacy in spaces that people typically don't want to look. Um, and so they, they, they exist in the places when we talk about philanthropy, the nonprofit sector, the, you know, the human social service sector in general, um, that those are places where white, the, the, the system of white supremacy is perpetuated by folks who see themselves as sympathetic um, to issues of racism and white supremacy. Um, and so I think as we come, as, as we grapple with what does it mean to understand um, racism and how it manifests itself, that black folks' calls for self-determination be understood not as the caricature that's often projected onto it, which is, oh, this just mad and hateful and don't like white people, because that's often the way that it gets characterized. And it's important for people to understand that, no, it's, it's a resistance to the kind of paternalism um, I guess the last part I say about this is, I mean, 1852, Martin Delaney, who was a um, black um, general in the Union Army, who was a who was kind of an incipient um, Pan-Africanist, um, in 1852 actually critiques the liberator. He critiques the the formal arm of the abolitionist movement, um, and he critiques them because of all their national offices, they only had three black people employed. And so in 1852, Martin Delaney is making this criticism, and he, he basically says either there's racism within the abolitionist movement, or they don't believe that black folks are equal and have the capacity to operate those offices, and either scenario is problematic. And so this resistance to the paternalism um, that black folks are subject to in white liberal spaces is not a new phenomenon, but again, I just think it's important to put it in the context of us resisting that not as the kind of um, temperamental anger that is often projected onto that impulse. Yeah, yeah. Real quick, I mean, there's uh, a beautiful struggle just to release a critique of the human services and philanthropic sector recently. Um, and uh, I don't know if you want to give a short version of that or, or even tell us, I just wonder if your, your outlook on that or critique has evolved. I mean, you've been making that some version of that critique for about a decade. Um, so has it evolved at all? And um, and, and what's kind of the, the postage stamp uh, explanation? I mean, so um, LBS just published um, what we're calling a black paper, um, When Baltimore Awakes. Um, it's actually a playoff of Hubert Henry Harrison's 1920 piece, When Africa Awakes. And Hubert Henry Harrison was a, uh, a scholar of the New Negro Movement. Um, you know, Jolie Rogers referred to him as the black Socrates. He had relationships with Marcus Garvey. And When Africa Awakes was a critique of the socialist movement um, in the labor movement. Um, and so he was at a time, particularly in Harlem, when Garvey could, is, is kind of at his peak, um, he takes up the critique of the way in which those, you know, the Communist Party and the labor movement um, positioned themselves as friends to black people and saw the socialist and communist movement as a part of the struggle for liberation for black people. But Hubert Henry Harrison was criticizing the way in which those formations perpetuated racism. And so in this... Um, paper that we just released, it's a critique of Baltimore's human social service sector. 
Um, and just one of the examples that I'll give, um, we, we talk about um, the, the Boys of Baraka school and the documentary. And one of the things that we talk about in the black paper is to say that when you watch the documentary of Boys of Baraka, I mean, the communities that are represented, you know, in East Baltimore are represented primarily through the lens of pathology. You very rarely hear commentary about what are the things that folks are doing to survive those kind of dehumanizing circumstances. Um, and so oftentimes what happens is that the narratives that are made most available are narratives of black people being represented as pathological. And then it reinforces the racist beliefs that people are socialized to believe about black folks. So that's one of the things that we discuss, and we just talk about the way that that notion impacts the nature of how services are delivered <coughs> to the extent that it actually does harm to black. There's some people that think it's neutral. I've had folks say, just have an adult, in, a caring adult in a young person's life, and that's good. And you wouldn't do that if like, you were getting surgery. You wouldn't just want a person that's passionate about the human body. right? You, you wouldn't want a person that has very strong expertise in how they're handling something that's very precious. Um, and so part of the point that we make is that there's harm that is done um, to folks that are serviced by the human social service sector because of the white supremacy in it. Well, that's a good transition to Anton, some of your work, because the Christian community development movement, and I'm going to summarize it, and you can correct me <laughs> where I get it wrong, but it's this movement that says if you are just coming in and out of the community, um, you could, trying to help, you could do more harm than, than helping. Um, that people in these communities have felt needs. If you don't feel them, you can do harm in these places. And that um, you need to have the same things at stake as they do. And what that translates to in Christian community development is what they call the three R's. First R is relocation. Like, you really want to help, you live there. Not like, come on, everybody, move to Sandtown all at once. But, you know, people have to be really really dedicated to do it. The third R is redistribution, being very self-conscious about like, these networks and resources are gonna follow me, and they need to be used for the benefit of the community. And then the third R is racial reconciliation, reconciliation, but a lot of racial reconciliation, the notion being not just like some kind of kumbaya thing, but that by bridging racial and class divides, that will create a foundation for economic development that would be a little stronger than just a desire to profit. And so um, the father of Christian community development, John Perkins, used to keep a pamphlet around to submitting to, called Submitting to Black Leadership. And I wonder if you could tell us about your insistence on including longtime Sandtown residents in leadership of any community work that happens there, even when these folks are relocating, and maybe give us an example of that. My contact is this thing on? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Kids in the same born and raised, and to be a partaker in that thing, to just describe the CCDA movement, which is Christian Community Development Association, we were dead on, we didn't do anything wrong. Okay. <laughs> and so, one example of, to, to your question is the leadership aspect. We started with the Color Ministries, one of the housing ministries, which was Santa Habitat for Humanity, the School and Strong Community Learning Center, the Health Center. And Eating Jobs, which is a job assistance program. Uh, none of these are in existence now, but the attempt, the intention, the platform was there for 25 years in the community that I call home, born and raised. And one of the things that was intentional about 
these ministries, leading these ministries, is that it was combined with a relocator, you know, some of, of um, European descent, and local leadership, people who were born and raised in the community. Um, that was a intentional form. And so none of our ministries would you walk into, engage in, and see somebody from the outside pointing, doing all the answers and being asked all the questions, and not hear our voice. It was intentional that we make sure that our voice was embedded in the process of providing services to the community. Yeah, and I mean, you work with a lot of white folks who have come to Sandtown looking to help, who are maybe unfamiliar with the neighborhood. You were really deliberate about your work with them when you co-led these urban ministries. You know, and it seemed like you were kind of the um, the conduit of a lot of the work of the reconciliation arm. So, you know, relocators had your phone number, right? I mean, so tell me about your role in Sandtown with white folks who felt drawn to the community. Well, the first thing is that we made sure that we met with everybody who thought about moving into the neighborhood, particularly under the philosophy of CCDA, and particularly into the um, um, area that we were working in and living in. We made sure that they sat down with Patty and I, Patty being relocated, me being a native of the community, to hear their hearts, to share with them what our key components were all about and our principles were about. Like you said, it's not just about parachuting into our community, thinking we saving somebody. You know, it's about being a neighbor, two neighbors. So when it snows and my block is not shoveled or um, plowed from the city, yours is not idle. You know, when my recycling is not picked up, yours is not idle. You know, so you partake your eye level to the pain and the challenges of your neighbors while living in the same community as you do. And so we would meet with them, hear their hearts. And I'm happy to say that it wasn't anybody that I could think of that would have gave a thumb down about moving into the neighborhood. I think they all got it. I think they all appreciate it. Some of them are in the audience now. Not to put them on the spot, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, Dr. Beverly Lee. So the few folks who are here who can attest to, you know, our intentions and our goals of building and working in the context of racial reconciliation. Audrey, in one of your articles, you talk about, uh, quote, locally initiated community development. Um, about, quote, valuing the community based on its assets rather than its apparent deficits, which, David, I feel like that kind of ties into what you were saying. Um, with that passage that I read in mind, would you mind sharing your take on the dynamics of community development here in Baltimore, you know, in the context of our region's hypersegregation? You know, maybe what does community participation usually look like when outside developers come to places like East to West Baltimore? Um, may I first say how much I enjoyed your book? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and so it's important to talk about your book uh, because it does something rare and special, which is it takes um, a, a process of uh, living in a city under segregated conditions, but in particular development, because your story is very much focused on efforts to desegregate and to develop. And to capture that in a, a book, this book is a history, but it's also told in a novel-like way. And I've been saying for a long time that in development, um, we need a, a, a book and we need a movie. So you've written the book, and now we need a movie. Because whenever we talk about these topics, we end up talking in huge generalities, or we have s snapshots of particular effort, efforts. But we're to, in the 
Oh, acronyms, yes, absolutely. And then to have connected them all into over a period of time um, and brought them to life in a way that we can capture, first of all, the complexity of what's actually going on um, and in terms of who, who, what are people trying to do and what are the obstacles and how they encounter them instead of hearing about it through the pathologized way of, oh, so there's a foreclosure. What did that person do wrong? So one of the most powerful things in the book was for you to show the hope, the ingenuity that went into um, Nicole's mother acquiring the, the house. Um, and um, yeah, the and pathology was the people were giving up mortgages. Exactly. And then seeing how it ended up um, in something that we could see as foreseeable now, but it was not at the time. So at least wanted to say that. Um, and uh, with respect to how uh, development happens, um, there are many kinds of development in Baltimore. Um, so there's uh, what we call economic development or local economic development. So there's development happening as a matter of the state trying to attract businesses. The city is trying to attract businesses. And that's kind of a predominant focus. Um, the community development is kind of what happens when people are engaging in self-help. And it's almost uh, ordinary people who are supposed to be surviving, making a living, are also in, have to be the ones to try and provide for their neighborhoods what isn't being provided by the market because of racism and what isn't being provided by the city because of um, racism in the sense of um, there's inadequate resources, but the way that they get allocated follows a racial logic. Um, so in terms of community development all over the city, I think there's an incredible ingenuity, um, deep, sustained efforts, um, and lots of obstacles because it is not supported, I think, in a long-term way by the philanthropic community or by the city. And that's been a critique of mine that I get to make because I don't have any grants. Um, <laughs> and I won't be applying for any soon. Um, but it is something that um, there's, uh, there's kind, of a, uh, kind of an expectation that whatever we're going to accomplish is incremental, and we're looking for something that's going to be making a great splash. And that the community development that is successful is long, hard. Um, it's going to have missteps. It's going to have obstacles and breakdowns. And there isn't that long-term support. There's kind of this uh, self-help, pick yourself up by the bootstraps approach, uh, you know, which is, well, we're going to provide you matching funds. It's like, where am I going to get the main fund funds from? So I do think that I would hold uh, the philanthropic community very responsible for uh, not providing that sustained um, uh, support for development and for what it takes. Um, and I do wish that there was a way that the neighborhood needs could be met in a more institutionalized way than people having to become basically developers themselves in order to make their communities livable. That being said, um, there's other kinds of development taking place um, in Baltimore. And uh, at least with respect to, let's say, a developer coming from outside the community, Baltimore does have a tradition of 
consulting with the community organizations in the neighborhood um, to allow certain, uh, if, if there's certain approvals that you want to get, you kind of have to show that the community is on board. So there is a tradition of um, kind of requiring the developers to figure out a way to um, interact with the community and get their approval. Really from a pragmatic point of view that if the community is not on board, then that's an additional um, battle that you're going to have to have. And so they do try to avoid that. So there's a, a, a tradition of um, expecting some involvement from the community. But where the decisions are made um, at the level of um, uh, the types of development that gets undertaken, um, I don't think the participation is as as expected or welcomed in, in, in that respect. Yeah, I mean, right, that, um, that community participation and development is not just a matter of, quote, inclusion, which is a very valuable word, but, quote, a struggle for redistribution of power. I mean, has this development consultation of communities ever really made it power dynamic that much less lopsided? I have one tiny example, tiny, but uh, during uh, the hearings about community development block grants. And the hearings are held because it's a federal mandate that you hold those hearings. And they would be, okay, what have you got to say about this proposal? You disagree, thanks for your time, next person. And um, during the Clinton administration, so this is old, the regs were changed to require the city to at least explain, hey, why did you turn down this application? Just explain. And it changed things because suddenly having to justify what was being done was a powerful just eye on you're going to be held accountable for your decision. So there are tweaks that you can make to kind of make it more of a give and take. Um, but it's very often not discovered until you know, after the fact. Yeah, um, can you tell us just briefly about what Gary's Foods was? And in turn, this is one thing that strikes me about these dynamics, right, is that the capital just often isn't there for bottom-up development in, in poor communities. I mean, they're poor communities, so there's always this reaching out um, for capital elsewhere. Like a lot of black businesses back in the day couldn't even get credit. They leaned on folks like Willie Adams, who would beat the odds and break in some serious stuff, you know? And then you have the Community Reinvestment Act, kind of. Uh, you know, there was the development credit fund for a while, but there's always this seeming need for outside investment. So I want to hear from all of you about that. But Antoine, I mean, you guys started this shop out of church. Yes. So tell me about how you got that up and running and, and what it was like, how much money you needed from the outside of the country, and how you tried to keep control, you know, you and Gary. Gary's was a hybrid business that was basically a convenience store slash coffee shop on one of the most, in my opinion, historically dangerous intersections in Sandtown. A strict impressment. Yes. And you guys didn't have plexiglass. You didn't have plexiglass. We did not have plexiglass delivery. We were open for four years, never been robbed. And I think the key to that was that we were neighborhood folks. Folks loved us and knew us. And so they embraced it and there was a sense of ownership from the very onset which I think had us a long way. Of course, um, having a coffee shop in Sandtown 
uh, was a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> when in actuality, like most African Americans, I'm not trying to be belittling of our community, African American communities, but if we would have had some type of greasy spoon, I think we would have had much of a longer run as business owners in Sanitan. But we decided to open up a coffee shop and have a sit-down coffee shop for the community and for those who are volunteering in the community, working in the community. And for Gary, who was named after the lifelong resident of Sanitan, Gary Palmer, who was a proud dad, loved the community, who still lives in the community, at home in the community, and so, but it was interesting because to get the finances, um, we did allow benevolent folks to um, come alongside us. We did not qualify for the additional loans that were necessary. I won't name that. Um, that can is down. So you say problem? You say problem? Oh, is that what I said? <laughs> anyway, um, but it was interesting to have that, and I really love the fact that we were allowed to own the business. I mean, all of which was ours. Any innovation and anything that we decided that we wanted to use as an example or as something inspiring to the community, we had that option to do so. And so uh, for four years, we were able to hire from the neighborhood. All of our employees were from the neighborhood, which I think was powerful in itself. And so um, I don't know how much more to add to that. But you, I mean, you guys needed you need to catch yeah, the, the, the redistribution, the, the you know, like the three R's played into this. This is straight out of the yes. playbook, and it was very connected to outside the neighborhood in terms of, yes. you know, sustaining it, right? That's learning the business culture. We relied on folks who were experienced in that regard, and they came alongside us and taught us how to keep the books and, you know, how to pay attention to inventory and things of that nature. And so um, I think it was a beautiful example. I think it is a model that needs to be shared throughout this country of what can happen when folks are willing to come and be alongside you. Not necessarily, not necessarily trying to lead you and tell you what to do and come like some savior, but really come as a neighbor, as a friend, and live out what this American dream is supposed to be about. And, Audrey, uh, I wanted to hear from you about one of your latest pieces of work. Um, you write about something called managed discrimination. Um, that affordable housing and income developments get built in a way that, quote, takes into account the discriminatory preferences of wealthier residents. And one of the big things in the book I cover is Under Armour's attempt to develop South Baltimore. And they promised 20% affordable housing because people flooded the city council hearing because it was after Freddie and people in the world's up, and they got out of that. Under Armour promised $100 million community benefits agreement. It said 20% affordable housing, but when you look at the language, it's they will try to build them on site. And if they can't, they'll try to build them in not poor neighborhoods. And if they can't do that, they'll do it elsewhere. And really, if it's not financially feasible, they'll just pay into the inclusionary housing fund. So um, just tell us more about managed discrimination and what it seems, like I said, outside of power dynamic we have between black communities in the world, developers and investors. That physically shaped the city. Um, so one of the um, efforts to build affordable housing is through inclusionary housing, inclusionary zoning. And so there's this idea that um, uh, public housing was an absolute failure by uh, concentrating too many poor people within a um, project 
Um, as we know, the story is more complicated than that in terms of how those uh, buildings were maintained and um, how they were run. Um, in some areas, uh, there's a famous case from St. Louis called the Pruitt Igo, where they um, regarded it as the biggest public housing failure because um, the infrastructure fell apart and it uh, became um, unmanageable. Um, and the residents who lived there said there's a different story, and one of which was that the public housing had to be run based on the rents that were received from the actual residents. There was an incredible deficit in terms of what was needed to run them. So um, with respect to inclusionary housing, the idea is that why don't we rely on the market, market-based housing, and get developers to include certain affordable units within their development, which I think I thought was great, you know, um, that at least it would be, you know, uh, incrementally providing affordable housing. Uh, but I started noticing um, uh, ordinances or laws across the United States that were adopting these inclusionary housing programs. And they would either be voluntary programs or mandate a very small percentage would be affordable. So the first obvious critique is, well, how will you ever address the affordable housing crisis with these small set-asides? And they're usually justified by the finances of the deal. You can't ask the developer for more because the, deal, the numbers of the deal wouldn't work. I said, okay, well, what if we put the financial issue aside? Isn't it also consistent with a concern that too many um, uh, low-income people would make your project undesirable? And so I started looking at the social dimension of how those percentages are set. So it's caused me to think about um, uh, inclusionary housing has been a way to avoid the opposition to um, racial integration. Um, based on our history of the Fair Housing Act and all of the efforts that were deliberately taken to racially segregate, the effort to desegregate from the 60s to now has been a failure, um, largely. And um, the insights that Barbara Samuels and others had that we could um, move people out of um, segregated uh, communities in the city out to the suburbs was premised on the availability of this mixed income housing. And the mixed income housing would be a way to be, uh, a development would be more acceptable to the community because it, it was not gonna be a low income development the low-income residents would essentially be hidden within the, uh, the project, and then it would become uh, attractive, and it would have a higher status. It would not face the stigmatization. So when I started thinking about that, I said, well, what we're doing is kind of catering to the discriminatory um, impulses of the residents, and we're trying to work around it. And so I just started thinking about how lawyers are drafting these ordinances all over the country, not really thinking about, well, when you decide what's the acceptable percentage, how do you decide apart from the finances? And it, I do think that you know, we're trying to design these complexes to cater to the needs, preferences of the, uh, what would be the market rate tenants and their, their likelihood of avoiding 
these projects. So it's something for us to consider whether it is acceptable to take those discriminatory impulses into account um, when it, it might be, it's affecting, I think, the supply of affordable housing. And it's moved from market rate housing to also uh, we're redeveloping public housing, and the federal government has made mixed income housing as its prioritized way to develop. It's a complicated story because if you ask some residents, they would say, we want upper income residents in our communities. We don't want to just be solely low income um, because it, it brings cachet, it brings legitimacy, it brings um, role models. Um, but in reality, the way that these communities operate is there's still what they would call micro-segregation that takes place within those communities, um, particularly where someone's low-income status tracks their racial identity. If they're low-income and white, there's more integration. If they're low-income and black, there's a presumption. Or if you're black, there's a presumption that you are low-income. So it's complicated, it's difficult, but I do think um, that it embodies um, discrimination management. Thank you. Uh, I think we're going to move to audience questions in just a couple minutes. Can I ask one more? Well, well, maybe, I mean, if y'all want to chip, uh, chip in on this too, but Dave, I'm just, in, in just thinking about a hyper-segregated city and when we cross the lines and when development happens, when you've got an empty apartment building, it's not black and white yet. And that was the idea of Columbia. It's brand new, and then we take a change. Now, I'm just curious what you think of some of these strategies people have to try to cross the line, saying, oh, this, these fancy apartments, we're going to let you have whatever, 10, 15%. Or, you know, white folks moving into Sandtown, this model of, of trying to listen. Just as what you've heard tonight, I'm curious um, of your perspective of these different ways of crossing the lines. Yeah, I think at best, um, the approaches around inclusionary housing are attempts to mitigate the harm that is done by the way in which the increase in cost of living impacts um, working class people and folks that um, are poor, that wages are stagnant, right? So I think a part of it, so for me, that's, that's really the extent to which inclusionary housing addresses those issues. I think the kind of ultimate place to go, and it's a place that as a matter of public policy is not something that's been explored enough, is the idea of collective black wealth creation and mechanisms for doing so. And what's interesting is that peoples of African descent have a history of, that, of cooperative economics as the basis for how we navigate um, the economic um, disadvantages that we've had to encounter, whether you're talking about in the uh, 18th and 19th century mutual aid societies. Um, Baltimore actually, W.E. Du Bois did a study where, um, in the early 1900s where he said that Baltimore had the highest population of cooperatives in the country. Um, and so when you think about, um, and then you think about the South, where there are a lot of like worker cooperatives. Baltimore actually has a really rich history in that regard. Isaac Myers, who um, from the 1860s on, um, all the way to the late 18 or early 1890s, um, was a part of the development of a colored trade union association. And in 1869 and 70, um, he pulled together a national conference 
and his argument was kind of Booker Washington before Booker Washington in the sense that, but with a slight difference in that he advocated for black folks to develop trade unions to abstain from political agitation, focus on building economic self-sufficiency, uh, be so good at your craft that you're able to get the economic base to actually play a role in politics. And as a result of that, he actually was a major player in the Republican Party um, back then. And you know what's interesting is, is that, in fact, the Marine Dock Company, which was a multiracial cooperative, but it was mostly black, had a monopoly. They were caulkers, right? So people who were like fixing ships at Fells Point. Um, and they had such a monopoly on the industry of caulking um, that white folks actually, um, a mob destroyed their facilities, right? That, that was the, the level of a monopoly that they had. So I say all that to say that we have a rich history in collective economic development and collective wealth creation. That collective part is key because particularly in the late 60s, you see, and, and before that, but you see it become mainstream, this notion of like black economic development and even notions of like black capitalism. And the limits of that is, and one of the things the Kerner Commission that was established in 1968 um, by the Lyndon Johnson administration showed that um, from 68 to 80, that the black middle class increased um, by between 15 and 20 percent, um, but the black folks generally were poor in 1980 and 1968 collectively, right? And so that was the limitation of both the approaches of like individual black people becoming wealthy, even some of the impact of affirmative action, even though that white women were the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action, black folks that did benefit from it, a part of what happened was individual black people and maybe their families were able to get into the middle class. But it didn't facilitate collective wealth development and the development of an ecosystem that facilitates um, collective economic well-being. And so, and, I, and so one of the things that I've actually posed to somebody who is a, is a very big and prominent advocate of affordable housing in Baltimore, one of the things I, the question I asked was, should we be just as concerned about providing housing to residents that can't afford it as we are providing them the mechanisms to build it themselves? Like, what, what would it mean not only to provide affordable housing, but to build the kind of institutional formation such that folks in the community, many of which have many of the skills necessary to build it, to, to be able to provide those opportunities. That conversation, I think, is intentionally left off the table because there are folks that profit, that benefit from the conversation being limited to the idea of focusing on getting a few more people access to housing that don't have it. This is what uh, Joe Perkins likes to say. Uh, it's not about giving a man a fish or teaching a man a fish. It's owning a pond. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, unless you wanted to turn in, uh, maybe we should go to audience questions. Is that all right? Yeah, I'd like to start. Uh, uh, my question is, uh, <clears throat> I worked in city government during the time that we had Hope 6 and we turned down the highlights and all of that. And there were a lot of programs associated with that that we lost after Hope 6. I'd suggest have you respond. Why didn't Hope 6, the things that came out of Hope 6, move forward and continue to grow in the city? When you say the things that came out of the world, what well, well, for example, um, Cisco Systems was in town. Every new place built in uh, uh, in the new housing 
there was computer ports and everybody could, could get a computer. They could get computer training. People were given civility training. People were given training on how to run a household, how to do finances. Uh, they were assisted with education programs, etc. And these things were considered to, thought to, that they would be a catalyst. But at the end of the process, it just all went away. I mean, I would, I would argue that, um, so we've actually, our organization has been asked to, has been asked to study um, some of what happened. Um, and one of the things that we found was that one of the problems with the way that some workforce development programs are designed, as an example, is that the design, some of them are just to give people certificates. So that's like a problem. So let's set that aside for a second, right? So even if they're good, one of the limitations is that an individual may benefit from that. And what happens is that a lot of those folks then will move from the neighborhood. And so when they move, then you have folks who are left behind and the problem still exists. And so, and so a part of the problem is approaching a lot of these issues from the perspective of helping individual people get access to employment its limitation is that it doesn't necessarily impact the larger community in changing many of the ecosystems um, that then perpetuate a lot of those systems. And so like, for, and, and, and particularly in terms of ecosystem, because I think sometimes it can sound real ethereal, you know, talking about ecosystems, but if, if, I, if I take a dollar out of my pocket and I think about um, the market as like different centers of gravity, right? If I let my dollar go, um, to fulfill any of my regular needs. It's more likely to go to folks outside of my community, right? <laughs> so whether I want toilet tissue, whether I want, you know, gas, whether, you know, and so the financial institution I used to put my money in. Um, and so I think a lot of the work that it's going to take to build those ecosystems, ecosystems require building institutional anchors um, that traditionally don't necessarily exist in our communities. Things like maybe cooperatively owned credit unions. Right, where there's democratic decision making about what it invested in, what, you know, how it lends. Um, and those are things that have actually been done um, in places around the country and in places around the world. Um, but I, I do believe that those kinds of ideas don't get a mainstream audience in this town because I think, again, there are people who benefit from giving a few opportunities to people that are able to move um, and leaving things the way they are. I don't think I need a microphone. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question. I think it's Mr. Love uh -huh. in the white. I take it that this uh, coffee shop, this. Uh, I'm Ben. Oh, I'm Ben. ben. You're Ben. Oh, Mr. Ben. Mr. Ben. Um, I take it that this enterprise does not any longer exist. No. Can you tell us why not? Why did it fail? Um, I would I wouldn't say it failed. Yeah, not failed. I mean it accomplished some things. I'm sorry, it accomplished some things in other areas, but in terms of money making ventures, it did not. Um, what I didn't say, I don't think I said is that it was a coffee shop in a chicken box neighborhood. You know, and that's not to be derogatory, it's just a fact. You know, folks weren't leaning towards lattes and frappuccinos. You know, um, and we thought that we had a they had cornered the market on that because where we were situated, because you know, location, location, location is important. We were right 
at an intersection that said that was kind of trying uh, historically, but we were also close to three elementary schools. And I thought personally that teachers like coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I missed the mark on that um, personally, but um, to answer your question directly, we were handling money. That's why we didn't succeed in terms of it being a successful business and making money at the end of the day. But it also opened like at the beginning of the recession, too. Yes. <laughs> hey, y'all. Um, I'm basically surprised because I didn't know the topic was going to be this broad. I thought it was just mainly about your book. It's, it's cool. It's cool. Um, I want to say um, when y'all say white supremacy and racism, do y'all believe that it covers 10 activities of everyday, of everyday life, as far as um, economics, education, entertainment, health, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war? Nearly full it, right? Correct. Right. So y'all agree, all four y'all agree with that? It shapes, it's the context in which we're all operating. So right. we but, tend to but, think of it as individual, is some, does someone have racist intent, right. whereas instead it's, uh, it is a value system that's right. reflected but, in our <coughs> But I was just saying, if everybody don't understand those 10 activities, it's going to confuse you. So you're really not going to get the whole broad scheme or the whole concept to make you break out of it. Could I try and explain a different way that I included in my paper? Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple of psychologists who have come up with, um, they've observed societies around the globe, and it's called social domination theory. And the idea is that in each society, there is a dominant group and a subordinated group. And then if you look at it you know, way back like that, you'll see that that is a human tendency in societies. There's the favored group and the, the not favored group. And so the favored group structures things to advantage its own group and stay dominant. And so you have a lot of policies that we would call everything when we talk about segregation, racism, redlining, we're talking about policies that allow the socially dominant group, which are <coughs> whites, to maintain that position, and it, it touches everything. Even something like, what is subsidized housing? Well, if you have a mortgage, well, until President Trump, if you have a mortgage, <laughs> your housing is subsidized. If you live in one of, if you live at Port Covington when you know, people start living there, that will be subsidized housing because tax breaks went into building that. But we regard subsidies are, did you have to go to an office and income qualify for it? And um, that's subsidy to us. And so it allows, um, uh, so our healthcare, our pensions, if you have those things, those are subsidized so that you feel, well, I've worked hard and I've gotten all of these benefits on my own. And then they're the takers who are getting subsidies. So it allows, uh, uh, so we would call those um, um, uh, what we call legitimizing myths of 
worthiness in one group and unworthiness, stigmatization in another group. And just to echo what Devon uh, opened with, um, white supremacy requires black inferiority. It's, it's a yin-yang. And so you have one group that's superior, and it has all kinds of explanations for why it is superior and functioning and um, doesn't have the primates and doesn't have um, you know, uh, um, pathologies, which in fact it does, but it has myths about why that exists. So if you look at it that way, um, that's kind of the relationship going on here. And it's important to acknowledge it, and I agree with you, white supremacy, <coughs> you know, we do think, you know, um, you know, a burning cross um, and kind of race hatred, but instead it's um, race privilege and race um, unprivileged in terms of resources and allocation of how everything functions. And it even reflects how the society has decided, you know, what we pay for and what we don't. Um, and even this idea, you know, that, you know, the healthcare crisis that we have to me is a, a, a race-induced system. That the idea is that we just didn't think it was worthwhile to provide healthcare for everybody. And it's not only affecting racial minorities, it affects anybody who is low income. So that is why you do need a, an income analysis or a poverty analysis or a wealth analysis as well. But it, it just shapes our vision of like, who is the we, who is the us, who belongs, and then who is the other, and who's illegitimate. And that's what we're struggling with. Um, because we see it, we see like, you're illegitimate and I have all these reasons why you are. Um, but it's working to our detriment that we can't get to that us, as Lawrence books. Okay. You guys mind if I type up about this? There's a trick in the book, um, and the trick is I discovered in the course of recording that both the white family and the black family in the book, uh, you go back a couple generations, they both started in public housing. Back then it was segregated by law. And the white family lived in Brooklyn homes, which is right now, all the shipyards and all the jobs were during the war. And the union to CRA to make sure the white people got the safest and highest paying jobs. And the black family ended up in Cherry Hill homes, which was built on a piece of land that everybody thought was too environmentally unsound for the land they on. And it was, it took until December 1945 to get any permanent war house during World War II with black people. Well, it's under 1945, you know, you're going to say, you know, okay, there's cold for a long time. And so you have them starting in the same place. And the trick is, I don't think I even used the world race privacy until about the end of the book, because I want you to see it first. And then you kind of, you get, you get a name for it at the end. Um, so that's, I mean, that's kind of how it plays out in the book. But I mean, the way I talk about it when I'm talking to white people is just like, like there's people think of white supremacy as happening behind a white hood, and I tell them it happens behind a desk every day. And it's not saying you're bad and you deserve what you have. It's just saying like it's, the system's going to put you on top, even if you're not, you know, if, if, if you're not cut it. It's still so, working. And we'll do one or two more questions. Hello, the current population trends indicating that whites will be a minority and other races will be a majority. What impacts do you see that having 
who's going to be white and who's going to be black. So it's a shifting line. Um, and I always think of South Africa, and you had a white minority that you know, is still, um, I think, in charge. Yeah, I think the South Africa example is a good one. I think um, to the point that Lawrence made about white supremacy, um, you know, well, that everyone really has made about white supremacy being a system. And so even when you have large populations of folks of color, um, you have people of color who are operating those systems in the collective interest of white folks because they themselves may benefit. And so I think a part of what we're seeing happen is the consolidation um, of white institutions and their intervention in the lives of black people and other peoples of color such to maintain control and power by those who will subscribe um, to that system. And so I, so I think it's important while the shift may present an opportunity in dismantling racism and white supremacy, I think it's important that we understand that there's work to be done so that when that shift happens that it actually is something that has the impact of dismantling the system of white supremacy. Can I do it real quickly? Um, I would just point out, I mean, my son, I own a son who was born in the first cohort that's majority minority, if you want to put it that way. And the essay that I did to open up the series was I broke the news that one day he's going to be a white man and then said to myself, is he going to have any less advantage? What if he's growing up? And I white supremacy is shape shifting. So everybody likes to say, well, Baltimore's not black leadership. Well, they finally studied where the campaign donations come from in Baltimore City. In the Baltimore City races, it's 63% black city and 64% of the campaign donations come from white people. 43% come from outside the city. It's shape-shifting. You know? It's a fine way. The only way you can use those numbers to your advantage to me is politically. you got the numbers, you know, but then you've got gerrymandering, you've got the voting rights act being torn apart. It, it operates in a lot of ways. Um, should we do one more? Okay. Uh, I come as a Baltimore County teacher with some other Baltimore County teachers. We teach middle school. Um, in our English class, we will teach students a reason in the sun and talk about Chicago and the red line there. In an effort to come alongside and have you all help us come alongside, what would you like us to say to the students and open their eyes on this issue so that as they grow up, um, they can look at their identities, whether it be black or white, and not feel inferior for our black students, not feel um, guilt for our white students who say, I'm 12. What would you say would be a good suggestion for us as we teach that work to our students this year that would be good for you all to see with regard to the Baltimore County, Baltimore City redlining map and issues? How would you like us to do that? Final question, excuse me. Good. Okay. Do you have, who do you have in front of you? Do you have any of their leaders in the community that reflect who they are? I'm coming alongside you as you partaking, educating them in that arena? That's a good question. I, I think when we look at the faces of the three teachers here, we're white women, and we have some African-American teachers in the school, some African-American administrators in the school, if that's what you're, issuing, you're asking. Um, as far as representatives from the community coming in to talk about that, that's something I would be really open to and would really appreciate. It's my second year teaching it, so I would really be able to suggestions for that. I think that's a great idea. Let me share this point real quick, real quick. Um, that CCDA embraced 
the Chinese proverb says, go to the people, live among them, learn from them, love them, start with what they have, build on what they know. Then the best of the leaders will say, we have done this ourselves. I think one of the things that, um, particularly for teachers, um, it's important to recognize the extent to which much of the preparation, the formal preparation that you've gotten to teach, um, in many ways has ill-prepared you to be able to effectively educate black children, um, and really children of any race. And the reason for that is because, we live, because of the nature of the way white supremacy operates, there's certain very deeply ingrained ways in which we hold those notions of white supremacy and black inferiority in our collective consciousness. An example of that, one of the things I argue in the paper that I mentioned in the beginning is that, and actually I'll tell a story. When I was a debate coach a few years ago, I was working with a gentleman who was coaching at a public school. This was back in like 2008. Um, and I had an analysis about racism and white supremacy. He happened to mention to me one day, he said, Davon, you know Africans were traveling the Atlantic Ocean um, before Europeans were. And so my initial thought was like, you know, why do we have to always have these conspiracy theories? Like, it's not a big deal. Like, what's the point of putting out such a crazy theory? And then I happened to stumble upon a lecture on YouTube by Professor Ivan Van Sernema that came before Columbus. And then I read the book. And there were two things, that, two realizations I came to after I read the book. The first was that, you, you know, Africans were traveling all the oceans before Europeans were. In fact, the Moors of East Africa is where the Portuguese, the Spanish, got the idea about the world being round. And in fact, Europeans were some of the only people that thought the world was round. But the other thing that I asked myself, why was, I, why was I so willing to be dismissive of the idea that Africans were navigating the Atlantic Ocean? And, and even though I had an analysis of racism and white supremacy, I had not encountered narratives of peoples of African descent operating in elements of civil society marked as high levels of civilization. Like, I had not come in contact with those kinds of narratives. And so as a result, when you don't have examples of those kinds of narratives, then the notion of white supremacy and black inferiority are rational beliefs. And so and if you think about the work that has been done over the past three centuries at really um, burying the historical achievements of peoples of African descent, I was reading Ivan Van Serma's um, book on sciences and ancient African civilizations, where in the Cairo Egyptian Museum, um, they have um, prototypes of gliders, air gliders, right? Where the ancient Egyptians were looking at aerospace, right? And, and, but they, was, they were put in the museum with the dig outs of birds because they, it just wouldn't have crossed their minds that folks actually built airplanes, right, in, in, you know, 2,300 years ago, right? And so, and there are lots of examples, you know, we were smelting steel 2,000 years before Europeans were. And Edward Wilmot Blyton's African Customs, he talks about um, the Bantu tribes in West Africa, where when Europeans had an epidemic of infant mortality, they studied the Bantu tribes to develop um, approaches to reproductive health um, that was able to help deal with the issue of infant mortality. See, one of the things that white supremacy does is black folks and our bodies of work are not considered intellectual resources for solving human problems, right? And so, and, and, and one of the things that Van Sonneman likens it to, it's like if 
a nuclear war were to take over the world, hit all the industrial centers, and you define the civilization of this society by those on the periphery, right? That's, that is what has happened to the, the culture and history of peoples of African descent. And because most folks are not aware of that history, then people literally don't have a space in their brain in any context to imagine peoples of African descent as having the level of intellectual acuity of white folks because white folks have constructed Egyptology emerged as an academic discipline in the 1800s for the purpose of theorizing Egypt out of Africa, right? That John Henry Breasted uh, commission, was commissioned by the Rockefellers to redo a book that he published in the early 1900s where he talked about the great uh, Negro race and of, ancient, of the ancient Egyptians and was asked, you know, he was put in charge of the Oriental Institute in Chicago, but was asked to change out the chapter where he talks about the great Negro race of the Egyptians and describes that the ancient Egyptians as, as the birthplace of the great white race, right? So you think about just all the intentional efforts that were done, right, in early American and European history to bury these notions of Africans having the intellectual capability, right, to be able to operate high levels marked to civilization. I say all this to say that as a person, how is it that you could teach black students <laughs> not knowing any of that history and not transfer your notions of black inferiority onto them? And so I would argue that as, as education professionals or anybody working in human service, that if you do not avail yourself of the knowledge of the histories of people of African descent and the work that peoples of African descent are doing currently, like the bodies of work, you know, on Gwen Oak Avenue um, years ago, about 10 years ago, there was the Marifa Center, right? Mama Kay, and there are lots of very prominent folks who sent their, you know, people who are high political office who sent their children. My academic advisor at Towson University sent his children to the Marifa Center, right? Which was a school K to eight independent African school, right? Most folks ever heard of it. And Saroma that just shut down recently, right? In Africa said a school, there are all these institutions that currently exist that borrow from that ancient knowledge um, that I would argue is necessary producing highly functioning people of African descent. And if white folks understood that the birthplace of all modern human civilization were peoples of African descent, I think it would impact one's notion of the beliefs of one's superiority. Right? It, would, it would undermine the mythologies that have produced the, the notion of white supremacy that, that drives many of the, the disciplines um, that are tasked with educating kids. And so I think there's a level of re-education that needs to be done, particularly on the part of those that are working with young people, to disabuse yourself of the notions of white supremacy and black inferiority that are endemic in the professional training you endeavor on. That's a part of how you get conjectured to even do your job. Um, and so and then there are lots of texts on it. Um, go to everyone's place on North Avenue on the second floor in the bookstore. There's a section on education. And I would say start there. Thank you so much, Davon, Antoine, Audrey, and Lawrence. I think that is a really great spot to end where we all have different things that we know we can go read, things we can do to make this change. Um, thank you all for spending your evening with us. Lawrence's book is in the hallway from the ID bookshop. Um, and he'll be signing in the hallway as well. So again, thank you for, for sharing all of your knowledge with us tonight. Yeah. So yeah, one more round of applause.
This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.